You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to October's edition of the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month's journal is a movement disorder special, so here we explore a couple of the highlights. Andrew Lees, who's currently director of the Rita Leela Western Institute at University College London, has written about setting up the Queen's Square Brain Bank and the early work done there into Parkinson's disease. He told me about the self-segregation of pathologists and clinicians at the time and the progress and diagnosis he's seen since. Neurologists in everyday practice relied on their clinical acumen to diagnose Parkinson's disease and there was mm-hmm. an increasing realisation that there were a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases that could masquerade as Parkinson's disease. Also coming up... Hear how patients' personal rating of response to dopaminergic replacement therapy is not closely correlated with those on objective scales. There were patients who rated themselves as having an excellent treatment response who actually either didn't improve at all or declined on the motor UPDRS. And the other way, there was patients who rated themselves as having no treatment response and they actually showed a fairly good response. But firstly, here's editor Matthew Kiernan, along with associate editors Nick Ward and Alan Carson, on where we are, where we've been, and where we're going with movement disorders. Well, I think it's particularly poignant for the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry to consider a themed issue covering movement disorders. And to sort of put the issue into perspective, I'm joined here by Nick Ward and Alan Carson on the editorial group for, for JNNP. And I suppose as clinicians, we often use this word extrapyramidal, but it's, it's, I think, important for us to realize it was only within the last century this term has come to general parlance in, in the neurological experience. And, and it really comes down to the founder of JNMP, Kinnear Wilson. And we all understood that the pyramidal tract controlled movement, but it was what was coordinating movement. And Wilson decided that he tried and put all of these approaches together under the term extrapyramidal. And he referred to the whole area, the control of movement, coming from really the dark basement of the brain. And that was the beginning of movement disorders. So from these sort of humble beginnings, it's great to see at the moment the, the various approaches for movement disorders bringing in neurology, neurosurgery and psychiatry. And so perhaps using that theme, Nick and Alan might want to bring in their thoughts to develop that idea about beginning to understand the basal ganglia, one of the things that I think is most impressive about this field is the development of deep brain stimulation as a treatment for patients with, uh, I suppose, what one could describe as disorders of the extrapyramidal system. So um, an incredible leap in understanding from these parts of the brain which reside in the in the deep basement, as you referred to, to really knowing um, a lot more about how they interact with one another and then being able to take that understanding and translate it into a treatment for patients, I think, is a real advance. Alan, what, what are your thoughts on movement disorders from the neuropsychiatry perspective? Well, I, I think what's um, been very interesting is, is the development of ideas that have, have been known for a long time, but the tendency for um, specific neuropsychiatric effects, particularly obsessive symptomatology, but a, a range of other phenomenology to occur, co-occur with, with movement disorders. What's very interesting about the field over recent years is 
that some of the mechanisms that underpin this um, are beginning to be unpicked and, and, and better understood. And I, and I think that's quite fascinating. And, and I think it has great impact for patients as um, people are tending not to think even of the common movement disorders like Parkinson's disease purely as disorders of motor function, but are starting to realize the massive impact of non-motor function in terms of quality of life. I think also in a mechanistic area, thinking more of the brain in terms of circuitry rather than just concentrating on basal ganglion disorders, trying to think of the influence of other areas. I find the cerebellum and its role in not just movement, but also in, in some of the associated psychiatric symptoms that go with movement disorders quite fascinating. And it's, uh, it's good to see this starting to get unpicked in the, the, this issue. Well, I think also, um, I mean, JNMP has had a strong heritage in, in this area. So we mentioned Kinney Wilson earlier, but Marsden, one of the previous editors of the journals, referred to Wilson as really the father of basal ganglia research. And later on in the podcast, we're going to hear from Andrew Lees, and he brings into the special issue the development through the Queen Square Brain Bank, trying to bring in the clinico-pathological correlations and in terms of understanding the whole spread of the disease and the clinical characteristics that define the separate disorders has really come through these approaches. There's a very nice paper that caught my eye uh, in this edition that comes from the Queen Square Brain Bank, which is looking at characterizing the symptoms in patients who had pathologically confirmed so-called vascular Parkinsonism. So these are patients in whom there was no evidence of idiopathic Parkinson's disease or any other extraparameter disorders and only had evidence of vascular disease. What's really striking to me as a, as a neurologist who's also interested in stroke are the symptoms that these patients had. The only thing that distinguished them from patients with uh, Parkinson's disease was the absence of visual hallucinations and the fact they were slightly older, but 96% had rigidity and 54% were found to have pyramidal signs. So quite a striking overlap in the clinical presentation. It does point towards one of the challenges in the field of movement disorders and how do you assess how many of these types of patients are included in some of the clinical trials because these are essentially patients who will be non-responders and I'd be interested to see how, how people will respond to this particular article in setting up their criteria for inclusion into clinical trials in the future. Agreed and I think the other important area for movement disorders is the development of really a therapeutic era. So taking it from just basic clinical descriptions of conditions, I mean, this is really at the forefront now of, of treatment and markedly improved outcomes for patients. Well, we really hope that JNMP audience really enjoy the movement disorders theme. It serves as a fantastic example of the development of neurosciences, certainly in the last 90 years, but particularly the developments that will occur inevitably over the next 10 to 20 years. Now, as Matthew mentioned, here's Andrew Lees. Professor Lees set up the Queen Square Brain Bank, and whilst there he co-authored two of JNMP's most highly cited papers. One on the importance of Lewy bodies in idiopathic Parkinson's, and the other on the accuracy of the clinical diagnosis of the disease. He's now director of the Rita Leela Western Institute of Neurological Studies at University College London and met me in the studio to discuss the research and the progress since. The first thing I wanted to ask you about was the, the UK Parkinson's brain bank. What was really your impetus for, for setting this up? Why did you feel there was a need for it? Pathology uh, in the 20th century grew up 
almost independently from neurology, although the history of neuropathology is that it was neurologists interested in finding the cause of death for patients that they'd looked after. But as the 20th century went on, there was a sort of conflict of paradigms and a split so that the pathologists were busy looking very carefully at brains, but often without much clinical information whereas the neurologists were desperately trying to diagnose Parkinson's disease as accurately as they could. And if you read the literature, it's really remarkable how very few clinico-pathological studies there were up until the, the 1970s, 1980s. Of course, when we set the brain bank up, we, we wanted to try and learn more about what causes Parkinson's disease. That was the main driving force for, for the brain bank. And we felt that although there were animal models, Parkinson's disease doesn't occur naturally in animals. And we actually felt that looking back at the literature, most of the outstanding achievements in the field of Parkinson's disease had come through the study of the human brain. Mm. So we, we felt that there, were, there was a need for this, and that particularly a need at a time when autopsy rates were tumbling and pathology seemed to be almost dying out. So Professor Marsden and I, uh, he was very enthusiastic uh, about the idea of setting up a dedicated brain bank for Parkinson's disease. Mm. And, and some of your early work um, using the, the brain bank material stressed the importance of, of Lewy bodies and, and how they're a, a risk factor for developing the condition later in life. So how was that received? Was it a kind of scepticism from the pathologists and a hurrah from the clinicians? Although the neuropathologists were very helpful for us in allowing us to access their collections, I mean, there was a bit of trade unionism, I think, at that time. And because we were not f formally trained as neuropathologists, when I, when I say we, I'm talking really about Bill Gibb, who was my first research fellow and myself. Um, we had a bit of a battle to be accepted and they said mm. oh they don't really know how to recognize Louis bodies properly and this sort of thing which happens in medicine a lot but um, I think at that time there was uncertainty about the specificity of the Louis body and how important it was to understanding the causation of Parkinson's disease it's not specific for Parkinson's disease, you can see Lewy bodies in uh, about mm. 5 to 10% of elderly people who die without any clinical evidence of Parkinson's disease. Right. And it does occur in a few other rare uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So we, we felt at that time, and I still think now, that it's a much more specific finding than, for example, amyloid plaques or neurofibrillary tangles, which you mm. see to some degree in almost all elderly people. I felt, uh, and I think David Marsden also felt at that time, that the Louis body might hold the key to unravelling some of the mysteries of, of, of what might cause Parkinson's disease. And that mm the paper that we wrote in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry with Bill Gibb and I was really to try and put that forward again as a, a very important line of future research. Mm. Of course, the other 
important thing to come out of that that early Lewy body research was the the Queen Square brain bank criteria, which he then developed into diagnostic criteria. Um, why were these very widely picked up? Was uh, was it just the state of the criteria at the time? What do you think? Well, the, there were no other criteria at the time, to my knowledge. So really, neurologists in everyday practice relied on their clinical acumen to diagnose Parkinson's disease. And there was mm. a increasing realisation that there were a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases that could masquerade as Parkinson's disease. Um, for example, in, in the 60s and 70s, Steele-Richardson Olszewski disease, PSP, multiple system atrophy, corticobasal degeneration uh, had been described mm. um, and it, it was becoming apparent that sometimes they could be quite difficult to distinguish from Parkinson's disease. As with many things, probably the timing was right, but what's interested me much more looking back with this these criteria is how long they've lasted and how much they've been used. It's become a sort of way of justifying that the patient population that you're using for your particular research uh, actually has the disease that you're claiming in the absence of any available biomarkers. We decided to set up these criteria in um, these different steps so that the first step is to diagnose the clinical syndrome of Parkinsonism, of which there are many uh, causes. The thing I'm most proud of in those criteria is that we thought very hard about uh, what bradykinesia is, and that was not actually something that was a major research focus at that time. And of course, literally translated, bradykinesia just means slowness of movement. And there are many neurological illnesses that can give you slowness of movement, but movement disorder specialists have always used it in a much more precise way to describe the problems of motor programming and motor planning that people with Parkinson's disease have. And we, when we wrote the criteria, we actually tried to define what we meant by bradykinesia, and that was a delay of initiation of movement with a progressive reduction in amplitude and speed on repetitive movements. Mm. And that actually has proved to be mm. a very important finding because many of the other uh, conditions that look superficially like Parkinson's disease don't actually have this sequence effect or motor decrement as it's been called. Mm. So although the, the criteria are perhaps better known for the sort of l long list of exclusion criteria and the prospective criteria as you go forward, um, I, I think that very first step's the bit I'm most proud about now, looking back. Mm. The diagnostic accuracy for these wasn't bad, was it? I mean, you had a 6% mismatch between what you identified through the criteria and what you could see with the, the histopathology. Um, but when you went on to look at how clinicians were doing this in the real world, I'm thinking your study, what you had a uh, hundred brains and yes. then, yes. and out of that hundred, you actually had 24, um, yes. which the clinicians uh, diagnosed as Parkinson's, but which you couldn't actually see that in the pathology. How, how was that received? That must've been a bit of a shock. Yes, well, of course, the, the first paper that we've talked about, the, the one with Bill Gibb in JNMP, we started really with the 
collections of our neuropathological colleagues and then tried to look at the clinical data linked with that to come up with the criteria. So we we started with the pathology as the gold standard okay. and then tried to look at the clinic. So obviously, having constructed these criteria, we wanted to try if we could to validate them uh, going forward. And once we'd collected the first hundred brains in, in, in the Queen Square Brain Bank, we decided to do this, I suppose, reverse maneuver, looking at the clinical aspects and then seeing whether the pathological changes that most pathologists accepted as being the gold standard for the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, that's to say the presence of severe nerve cell loss in the substantia nigra associated with the presence of Lewy bodies mm. were present. And um, Andrew Hughes, who was a visiting research fellow from Melbourne, came. Uh, as a sort of side project, we gave Andrew this job of um, the clinical pathological study, and uh, he did it really in his spare time, mainly in the evenings, uh, as a sort of small, almost an audit project, really, rather than a scientific project. Um, and I, I can still remember when he he told us the results, which you've, you've just mentioned, uh, how really surprised we, we were that um, British neurologists anyway didn't seem to be as good as they thought they were at accurately diagnosing Parkinson's disease based on the accepted pathological criteria. What do you think of the, the progress that's been made since? Well, I think these sorts of clinical pathological correlations have helped neurologists throughout the world to be more accurate in their diagnosis. I mean, we still get a fair proportion wrong, particularly in the early stages of the disease. It gets easier as the natural history evolves, and you can see the speed of progression, the fully established clinical picture. But in the early stages, the disease is still quite a challenge for neurologists to diagnose accurately. And uh, Andrew came back 10 to 15 years after he'd done the original project to do a sabbatical with us. And we decided to repeat the project, but with the, the last hundred before he came. And we found that the diagnostic accuracy had increased greatly in, amongst British neurologists. So that oh, whereas they were getting 24% wrong in that first study, they were only getting 10% wrong in, in the second study. Mm. So do you, do you think that initial paper was a bit of a, a kick to, to researchers it, and clinicians? It was greeted with incredulity, quite frankly. I mean, many people overseas felt that British neurologists were incompetent um, and that we were much worse than they were. Uh, and it was greeted by pathologists in a sort of... They were not sure that we'd done it properly, I think, really. that They, they, they were not sure that we'd... Maybe that we'd missed Lewy bodies in some of the brains um, and things like that. I remember Andrew presenting the, the data at one of the British neurology meetings and there was a, a very long and quite aggressive um, interrogation about his results. Are the improvements in the, the diagnostic criteria and, and the diagnosis, is that for you the most satisfying and important 
aspect to come out of this early work in the in the brain bank, or is there other other things you'd like to talk about? I think been a, a, a very valuable achievement because it's altered clinical practice. Now I'm a neurologist, basically dealing with patients, so we're we're always interested in how our research impact on society and on patients rather than just scientific advance. But I think David Marston and I had never really dreamt that a brain bank would have become such a powerful research tool. So it's now being used more and more uh, for, for example, genome-wide association studies, molecular pathological studies, um, hardcore uh, wet lab research. Most research establishments acknowledge that um, brain banks still have a very important part to play in um, our understanding of neurodegenerative disease. Great. And um, and finally, I have to ask, what was David Marston like to work with, as he is fun as the myths suggest? I mean, the Americans would call him awesome, but uh, the word I would use is mercurial. He, he was um, a very charismatic individual. He was a, a good clinician in the traditional school of British neurology, but I think he, he realised that... Um, it was very important to bring science into the clinic. He was an inspirational leader and, and he set up a school of uh, movement disorder doctors, many of whom have gone on to have very distinguished careers. And uh, British neurology traditionally hasn't had schools unlike some of the European neurological Units. The history of British neurology is much more individualistic with great neurologists doing good things but not necessarily spawning a school of people. Um, and David certainly was the first to do that in movement disorders. Fantastic. Well, Andrew, it's been fascinating talking to you, but I suppose I'd better let you get back to Queen's Square. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, Harriet. Nice to talk to you. Assessing response to dopaminergic replacement therapy is essential for diagnosing idiopathic Parkinson's disease and also for adjusting dose. One measure is to ask the patient how they feel. Others are more objective, such as the UPDRS or time tests. However, a paper in this month's issue shows that these are not always correlated. I spoke to first author David McGee about the findings. He's a clinical research fellow in the Division of Applied Health Sciences at the University of Aberdeen. And I began by asking if he thought clinicians assume patients' views of their own improvement mirrors that measured on objective scales. I think a lot of people probably do, um, but there's probably two sides to this. There's how people use these measures in research studies and how people use them in day-to-day practice. And I think in a, in a sort of standard clinical setting, they're usually, because of pressure of time, it isn't possible to undertake a full motor UPDRS or, or even time tests. And so people do fall back onto a subjective measure because it's really quick just to ask the patient how do they feel they've responded. Whereas in a research setting, people are far more likely to try and rely on the, the objective um, measures and probably not even use subjective measures at all. So we, we were interested to see these two sides of the coin if, if they were actually doing the same same thing. Right, okay. And I noticed in, in the in your methods in the paper you were quite careful to 
to try and make the study as, as real world as possible. Yeah. I mean, some of the difficulty in analysing the study is it's drawn from a, a real-life instance study where patients are given um, a follow-up annually um, and in between annual appointments, if required, can attend to start therapy or have therapy adjusted. So the timings of assessments aren't standardised, which made the analysis a little bit more tricky, um, but, but it reflects better on what happens in normal clinical practice. Mm, great. So um, correct me if I get any of this wrong, um, but, but basically your method was to identify patients with clinically defined Parkinson's disease from this uh, long-term follow-up study of those with possible Parkinsonism. Um, yeah. That left you with 133 who are being treated with levodopa or a, a dopamine agonist. Um, and you tested them through the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, also time tests, PDQ39, and for the subjective personal criteria, use this five-point scale, uh, which raised from no response to an excellent response. Yeah. You test them at baseline before treatment and then in, in two subsequent follow-ups. So what, what did you find? What we found essentially was that between a pre-treatment assessment and the first follow-up, which the, the median time was around six months, all of the patients showed um, improvement in every objective measure apart from the PDQ39, which is a measure of Parkinson's disease-related quality of life. However, when you stratified that improvement according to the subjective improvement, whilst we found that in the patients who rated themselves as having the best subjective improvement, there was the best improvement in each of the objective measures. That association across the subjective uh, categories was only significant for the motor UPDRS. And even there, patients who rated themselves as having no or um, very slight improvement quite often had a, a, at least a three-point improvement on the motor UPDRS. So there was a clear discrepancy there. Mm. With the rest of it, were patients tending to to underestimate their response compared to the objective criteria, or, or which way did it go? Uh, there was a bit of both. We went on to try and um, stratify patients' subjective response by um, the percentage improvement in their motor UPDRS from baseline or pre-treatment to their first assessment. And we found at both ends there was a discrepancy. There were, there were patients who rated themselves you know, as, as having um, an excellent treatment response who actually either didn't improve at all or declined on the motor UPDRS. And the other way, there was patients who rated themselves as having no treatment response and they actually showed a, a fairly good response um, in terms of a motor UPDRS improvement. So although for most patients there probably was a fair um, association between subjective and objective measures, there were plenty of patients where that wasn't the case. Do you have any inkling why this might be? Why not seeing a, a correlation between these two? Well, we, we wondered, firstly, about depression and about cognitive impairment, and therefore undertook another couple of analyses. Regarding cognitive impairment, we found that that didn't appear to be um, involved in this discrepancy. Part of that may be that where patients were unable to make a decision about their subjective response themselves, which may have been a factor um, 
may have been due to cognitive impairment, then we did take into account the opinions of their carers. So that may have have neutralised the effect of, of dementia, essentially. Um, however, for depression, we did find that for those patients who had underrated themselves, there was a tendency um, for them to have higher depression scores than the patients who rated themselves appropriately or, or rated themselves higher than, than they actually scored in objective measures. So depression may well have played a role. Another possibility, particularly for the patients who overrate their improvement, may well be simply that they're sitting face-to-face with a doctor who has given them you know, new tablets to try. And there's this patient feeling perhaps that they want to to make the doctor feel good and, and therefore don't want to disappoint them that the tablets haven't worked. Another possibility is that um, what we are looking for, essentially, objectively, an improvement in the motor UPDRS may not be what the patient wants their tablets to do for them. Particularly, a lot of patients come to the clinic, don't have much in the way of bradykinesia, slowness of movement, but they really are embarrassed or concerned about their tremor. And the treatments often aren't great for improving tremor. So patients' expectations may may lead to disappointment when there actually is uh, an improvement. Hmm. So do you think this could account for a significant variation in in treatment if you've got push clinicians who are relying first and foremost on these subjective criteria? Do you think patients may not be getting um, the dose that they really need? Yeah, I think there there may be patients who have improved when they've started treatment, but will we'll come to the clinic and say that they haven't. And the tendency may well be then to titrate the treatment down and stop it. And then the other side, of course, there'll be patients who may end up taking tablets needlessly because although they think they're, they're telling the doctor that they're working, there actually is no objective improvement. So you need more than just asking the patient to have the tablets helped. It isn't sufficient. So so what objective criteria do you think clinicians um, should be using? Obviously, they might not have the simply have the time to, to go through the, the whole battery of, of scales that you use. Is there any one or simplified version that you could recommend? We, we feel, I mean, there is a new version of the, the UPDRS and the motor subsection coming out but it's actually more complicated than the, the previous version. We, we feel that for general clinician use, there needs to be a, a simplified short version of that, something which could, could be done in a couple of minutes and easily written down to be compared at, at clinic visits. And in addition, you can still continue to ask the patient whether or not they feel the tablets are helping. And then it really comes down to a clinician decision on, on the basis of those, whether or not to continue the tablets, whether or not to even consider increasing the dose. Well, David, thanks very much for for coming on and and telling us a bit more about this research. No problem, thank you. David McGee from the University of Aberdeen there. We've only been able to discuss a few of the papers in the special edition here, so take a look at the issue in print or online for far more of the latest on movement disorders. That's all for this edition. Next month, we'll be looking at research on multiple sclerosis and cannabis, and also disability in young people after head injury. So come back then. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.